0: G'day and welcome to the National Security Podcast and our special series on the Women in National Security Conference. I'm Gabrielle Canipe, here with you for the fifth, but not final, episode of the series. The conference came to an end on Thursday, and you're probably worried where you're going to get your national security fix after this week. But don't worry, we've got you covered with an additional episode of the podcast coming out next week. I'll have more on that later. Today, we have an interview with Dr. Hung Lee Tu a senior analyst at ASPE Defence and Strategy Program. But before that, we had a brief catch up with Nicole Renvert, Associate Fellow of the German Council on Foreign Relations. She and Chris had a chat about Germany's geopolitical trade and resource challenges. Let's take a listen.
1: Dr Nicole Renvert, Associate Fellow of the German Council on Foreign Relations. Welcome to the National Security Podcast.
2: Glad to be here. Good morning.
1: Now, you were on a panel yesterday that was discussing uh, the Indo-Pacific. Um, the Indo-Pacific is a fairly new concept. And is it that? Is it a concept? Is it a geographical concept? Is it a strategy? How should we think about the Indo-Pacific?
2: Well, you know, I tried to explain yesterday that the discussion about if it's called Indo-Pacific or Asia-Pacific is not really taking place in Europe. The reason behind it is that Europe, in particular Germany, see themselves as economic actors in the region and their relationship towards India and China is the most important because this is where the markets are. From a security perspective, the uh, Indo-Pacific concept is strikingly uh, interesting because it makes um, policymakers think about how they view the power situation in this region and this is something on the long run which will also affect European thinking on how to deal with India as a rising power, China's ambitions in the region and our partners here uh, Australia, Indonesia, the ASEAN state. So in order to to move from a purely uh, academic concept which the Indo-Pacific concept is, into policy making we have seen that the Australian government um, used it already in in, um, in its policy papers. But again we have to understand that it's at the end of the day not about wording but it's about policy being implemented and again how we deal with the power shifts in the region.
1: Yeah, and we've heard just um, from another lady who is from the Australian government that Australia's economic connection with Germany is is very strong. Um, we also see countries like the UK and France becoming quite heavily involved in the geopolitical landscape in the Indo-Pacific, and some of that is via military how do we expect Germany to view its economic linkages to this region and how that relates to the security of the region as well?
2: Well at the end of the day any economic power uh, is dependent on safe travel routes, trading routes on an op- on open markets. So um, the interest of Germany and the European partners is to keep uh, the trade with Asia ongoing and for, the, for this reason it's very important that we also look out for security challenges and tackle them Um, we see that um, this uh, understanding somehow now sinks into the minds also of uh, of German policy makers as a very close cooperation between the German and the uh, Australian government. We have a special uh, working group uh, between Australia and Germany. And we've seen that the Minister of Defence is currently in Australia, uh, has very good talks from what I understood. And um, here we see that the security discussion ties into the economic sphere. We are not an active um, security actor in the region, but again, the, the um, realization that we have to do something to strengthen uh, our partners in the region uh, is something which is close to the heart of European and German policymakers.
1: Now, Germany also exists in its own geopolitical landscape uh, in Europe and also very close to Eastern Europe, and we are seeing a lot of movement in that space as well with a resurgent Russia. How Does Germany struggle to be able to apply its resources in numerous different geographical regions when it has its interests so globally spread?
2: It has its interests globally spread, but the uh, main markets are now in Asia. I mean, for the past years, you could see that, for example, trade with the US has been the most important one, and now it's China. Um, companies looking out for other uh, markets here in Asia and try to diversify their, their economic outlook And they try to also deal with smaller states and have a lot of bilateral agreements. Now, because um, what we see, um, Germany has, in the years after World War II, been basically a mediator rather than an actor. And um, being in the middle of things um, changes the way you interact with other countries. So... um, the danger is that we are squeezed between different power centres and therefore it's very important uh, that um, Germany reaches out to its allies and friends, most um, prominent among them Australia, and really finds way to also understand what to do in the difficult situation of having China as an ambitious new foreign policy actor, the United States, of, of being something we t- can't really tell about um, uh, what will happen in the future also with respect to our close relationship uh, and also with respect to Russia so it's a very um, new set of questions we are faced with but again Germany has some experience of being in the middle of things and um, is now in the process of trying to you know, figure out where it, where it can replace its interests the best and where it can apply its strengths the best
1: you mentioned uh, how the US is changing its perspective in the way of its partnerships and its allies. what is What is the main feeling in Germany about the nature of U- the US. leadership under Donald Trump and how that affects Germany's view and activity in the world?
2: Well, Germany distinguishes between the current administration and the uh, long-standing relationship. it has. With the United States. Um, the dependency on the United States uh, is enormous, especially when it comes to uh, security questions. So therefore, we can't even afford of really looking for an alternative because all our security um, issues are dependent on the support of the U.S. So we have to continue to um, entertain a good working relationship with the U.S., but we are concerned that the support we had for so many years is uh, fundamentally changing. And what is changing is the discourse, which is very hard right now because, um, uh, again, Germany doesn't have an alternative. Therefore, I see efforts um, to to reach out to other allies uh, to strengthen also European integration and reaching out to Australia and uh, to France as, as their close allies is something we have seen with more intensity after the Trump administration took office.
1: Fantastic to speak to you here on the sidelines of the Women in National Security Conference. Dr. Nicole Renvert, thanks for speaking to us on the National Security Podcast. Thank you very much.
0: That was Chris Farnham catching up with Nicole Renvert, Associate Fellow of the German Council on Foreign Relations. Keen to hear what participants were gaining from the conference. He also chatted to a few to see what was inspiring them, any particular issues that stood out and resounded with them.
1: Commodore Michelle Miller, welcome back to the National Security Podcast and welcome to the second day of the Women in National Security Conference.
0: Uh, Terrific to be here. What a lineup of speakers um, there's been over the last couple of days. And even if it's not your area of direct interest, there's stuff in almost every presentation that's just a great general education about the breadth of national security but also some of the different perspectives. It's been terrific. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed Frances Adamson's speech. I think she connected to the crowd quite quickly and with her references to Game of Thrones, she had a bit of a comical sense to it. And I think when you're sitting down all day to have that kind of approach is it stands out amongst all the speeches so so far that's probably been my favorite. How did you enjoy the conference? It was really good. Um, I really enjoyed having that uh, balance of discussing gender and women issues and at the same time having uh, general national security uh, topics but with a focus on female presenters. I think it was a, a good balance and I could really great. Oh. And how did
1: you enjoy the conference?
3: I particularly enjoyed hearing from the, uh, the school students. I think it was really really inspiring to hear from the next generation of leaders. And um, yeah, it was actually really inspirational to, to hear their stories and why they eager to pursue a career in security.
1: And did you have any highlights from the conference?
0: I probably, I couldn't pick just one. I think every session was um, very different, but equally important. Um, and we all hope to come again next year.
1: Marina Service. Welcome to the final day and the networking drinks of the Women in National Security Conference of 2018. Now we just heard from Rory Medcalf, who is the head of the National Security College, and he mentioned that this has become the preeminent national security conference in Australia. How does that make you feel, being the inaugural convener of the national of the Women in National Security conferences?
2: I'm very pleased. I wasn't. I didn't think that would necessarily happen, but there's an element of, if you build it, they will come. So I think it's just sown the convening power of women in national security.
3: So hi, I'm Sophie Tremere, I'm from TALIS, one of the sponsors. Um, My thoughts on the conference are that there was some really excellent debate around the role of women in national security. Um, Particularly, I think one of the best speakers was Frances from Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. I thought she was incredibly engaging and would be an amazing leader to have at the helm of your organisation. Um, also, Mike Pizzullo from the Home Affairs, um, Secretary for Home Affairs, he was amazing, also very inspirational and really insightful in terms of what he talked about around um, the licence that we have to act in this space, so not just doing things for the sake of like finding out what we can achieve, but actually operating within our licence and respecting privacy. So, those were my two
0: highlights.
1: Now, how did you how did you find the conference?
0: It was really great, very informative, very entertaining, time well spent.
1: So what were some of your takeaways from the conference?
0: Um, so I found it really enriching to hear a wide range of perspectives on
1: national security. I found the, um, the presentations today to be especially diverse, which I really liked. Like the um, the presentation on the community um, from Cape
0: York was especially enlightening, so really enjoyed that. It's one of the highlights.
1: We are about to meet Alia Huberman from the ANU who has some thoughts for us.
0: I think this conference has been a really incredible showcase of female talent in the industry, particularly for people like myself who are still studying and on the cusp of the industry to see how many women are actively shaping the future of this country in its most challenging half century yet. It's been really inspiring and I think really important for everyone to remember that this country is being shaped by women at the helm of its national security community um, and that they're doing incredible work.
1: Now, if you could have involved something in this conference that wasn't involved this time, what would that be?
0: Uh, maybe some more discussion around climate change or maybe some guest speakers from um, Vanuatu or the other Pacific Islands who are here today. This is Jason Brown, National Security for Talos, and TALUS, of course, is heavily engaged with the college as one of the leading institutions building security for Australia. What were some of the takeaways from the conference for you, Jason? Well, I think the most important one is to have in one room some of the most talented women in Australia who are focusing on the security issues. It was an extraordinary thing. To do. I went to last year's, it was a great conference. This one takes it to another level, um, the level of debate, the level of engagement from young folk at university through to the most senior leaders of our defence department, our intelligence agencies. It was a fantastic thing to see and it should be a real eye opener for the rest of the community, the talent we've got here.
3: Oh, here we go! I'm
1: going to say that the actually sound like the media.
0: That was Chris Farnham getting insight into the thoughts of participants at the Women in National Security Conference. If you liked the sound of it, we hope to see you there next year. On top of that, while he was getting busy amongst the action, he lined up Dr Hung Lee Tu for a podcast on the ground. Dr Lee Tu is a senior analyst at ASPE Defence and Strategy Program. Prior to joining ASPE, she worked at the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at ANU, Institute of Southeast Asian Studies in Singapore, and the Institute of International Relations in Taiwan. Her research interests include multilateral security in Asia, foreign policy in post-socialist countries, as well as identity politics. Given her breadth and depth of experience, she is going to share with us the Southeast Asian perspective on the quadrilateral dialogue.
1: G'day Hongla Tu. Welcome to the National Security Podcast.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: We are on the sidelines of the Women in National Security Conference. You've just spoken on a panel where, which was discussing the Indo-Pacific, right. and we can now call that a fannel, which is the opposite <laughs> to a mannel.
3: Yeah, It was a very good one, actually.
1: It was a it was a great discussion, and we are here going. We're here talking today about a paper that you've just released, and it's called Southeast Asian Perceptions on the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, commonly known as the Quad. You've published this with our friends at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, commonly known as ASPI. So why don't you give us a quick overview of the question you're asking in this paper?
3: Yeah, um, in my recent research uh, endeavours, I think a lot of questions I've encountered was what are the region's reception of the Indo-Pacific concept um, and what are the views on the Quad? And I I kept hearing sort of one, um, uh, one response to that, that it was sort of uh, disseminated widely um, that that is um, that ASEAN or ASEAN region is not very favorable of the Indo-Pacific concept nor of the Quad. So there was a lot of concern being raised that um, the Quad in particular uh, would challenge ASEAN centrality and that would actually uh, contribute to um, the maybe failure or challenge uh, the success of the Quad. Um, but if I know anything about ASEAN I know that there would be a variety of different views.
1: So just and just before you go any further, let's let's just identify that the quad quadrilateral dialogue is a loose organisation of four countries. Mm-hmm. Could you maybe just quickly go over what the quad is and and how it came about before we talk about um the way we see ASEAN mm-hmm. and the way that ASEAN countries see the quad?
3: Yes, yeah, so quadrilateral security dialogue is actually an informal initiative of the four countries: Australia and. Um, Japan, U.S. and India uh, to come together to work on a variety of issues Um, but mostly I think people are associating this initiative with security uh, domain cooperation and it's um, in certain uh, sort of uh, initial stage, at least the Quad uh, uh, 2.0 as I called it because it is not a new concept, it is a revival of the Quad um, since the meeting in last last November. Um, So it it's certainly still in a very initial stage, yet there's so much debate on it already. Um, a lot of opinions um, and a lot of perception or misperception are being um, taking a center stage rather than what actually quad is and how it is developing. So actually that motivated me um, to do the study because... Um, I hear a lot of uh, disseminated views that I actually, uh, it's not that I agree or not, but I, I thought that they are giving only a certain angle of a view and they're not reflecting the region, which is very diverse and will have very diverse uh, security interests uh, and concerns as well. So, um, ASEAN, as I said, it it will not um, easily come to one view on any issue.
1: So your paper looked at the Southeast Asia's perceptions of the quad. Can you give me an idea of what drove you to ask this question and the methodology you used to to carry out this research?
3: Actually, it is important to state the motivation of the study because uh, I've heard uh, numerous times uh, how um asean feels being challenged or uh, asean centrality will be sidelined because of the quad in numerous conversations um in dialog um uh, venues or even you know in media uh, but i didn't really find that in um in my conversations with interlocutors in the region so i felt that it is um the perception that has been really widely disseminated including in australia has been quite skewed to uh, reflect one or two views only um so uh just out of curiosity i started to um to talk and ask questions about the quad and the perception of different people in the region about the Quad and I found out there's quite a quite variety of views and even people who uh, would first in first sentence might seem skeptical if you continue the conversation they'll give you a little bit more nuance for you so that was actually motivation of my study to show our case that ASEAN is a very diverse region um, the national interest will be very diverse and it is an evolving um, perception like each of the countries will perception will change depending on how actually the quad really develops so um to have a narrative that
2: hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank
3: That oh as it, uh, the quad can't success because ASEAN thinks it is, it is challenging it. I thought it was not entirely um, accurate, um, and that's why I embarked in the study that combines both quantitative uh, surveys as well as qualitative uh, interviews to really um, kind of highlights what are uh, are in current minds um, in uh, uh, in the regional thought provo- thinker thinkers um, think thought leaders and policy um, makers uh, in the region.
1: And, and so what were some of the thoughts? What did you find with your research?
3: Well, I thought um, it was very positive in Vietnam and, and Philippines. Um, uh, Malaysia was uh, quite um, a classic hedger, which doesn't say no and doesn't say yes.
1: Very classic Malaysia. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
3: Indonesia was also quite a big uh, chunk of, of uh, Indonesian respondents Um were on the fence and I should say that you know I, I can only talk about m- my collected respondents rather the country perspective uh, but uh, but I thought there is a lot of room um, for uh, for quad to be accepted in the region uh, and I tell you why uh, I think uh, the the report um, that I published will show you uh, in numbers uh, pie charts and a lot of, of figures um to support that argument. But um, uh, I think, you know, on principle, um, Quad works to the stability of the regions, right? Uh, That's the the purpose of maintaining stability, peace and cooperation.
1: So is that another way of saying that the Quad balances China's growing influence in the region or is it something different?
3: Yeah, and I'll get to that point, uh, to China as well. And, you know, uh, ASEAN's objective is also peace, Stability and prosperity. So, you know, where where is the contradiction? There is not none, right? Like Ambassador On Yong, who was the former ASEAN Secretary General, also said that as long as it is, you know, in accordance to the principles and norms under ASEAN Charter, that all, you know, sign off. There's no reason why we should oppose it, right? And and um, there are a few views that are negative or sceptic, I should say, sceptical about the Quad. Uh, that's because of, I think, misunderstanding or um, um, not correct way of defining what is Quad. So first of all, um, is the Quad a challenge because it's a, going to be another institution then that could compete with uh, ASEAN? But in my view, I don't think that's what Quad is going to do at the moment to institutionalize like another ASEAN uh,
1: So do you think this is why General Mattis, the US Secretary of Defence, was so deliberate in mentioning ASEAN centrality when he was presenting at the most recent Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore? Do you think that there is an understanding of how important ASEAN centrality is to the countries of the region?
3: And I think your question touches my second point, which is uh, of. Um, the misperception and confusion with the Quad and Indo-Pacific. General Mattis uh, talked about Indo-Pacific at the Shangri-La. He, he sort of didn't really talk about co- the Quad until the Q&A, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's actually what um, is really confusing for the uh, actors in the re- people in the region that um, the Quad and Indo-Pacific uh, are being conflated um the indo-pacific in its design is supposed to be free open and inclusive and as you said um uh, us uh, both in terms of speeches and policy papers have included asean centrality um in the narrative and so is australian as well whereas the quad uh, is um, mainly f- you know driven by four um four countries and the meeting among them so for asean not to understand direct the not to understand really the difference between two. Um, it will be understood at, you know, overlooking ASEAN or sidelining ASEAN or not including ASEAN when the matters of the region happen in the region. Uh, so I think it is very important to... um highlight that uh, the danger of conflating the two um and that's also one of the motivation of my study so in my survey i did ask um to find out what are the some understandings uh, how does the quad related in the pacific concept um and most um, most popular answer was whether it is um you know uh, integral external from the indo-pacific um it is uh, comprehensive to the indo-pacific concept um interestingly uh, i think the, the highest uh, response that the quad is actually integral part of the indo-pacific uh, came from vietnam so uh, the understanding between the relationship with quad and the indo-pacific was reflected um, in the uh, in uh, among the vietnamese respondents
1: why do you think the Vietnamese were so positive about the Quad in your in your study?
3: Well, I, th- I think there is no coincidence that the two most supportive um, responses uh, that I've got from Vietnam and the Philippines. Um, the Vietnamese and Filipino uh, respondents it's no coincidence that you know they have interest in in balance in the regional security um, uh, cooperation that could you know um, uh, balance uh, the power because of the, what's on and going on in the South China Sea
1: mm. and did you find any respondents that were almost opposite from say the Philippines and the Vietnamese response people that, or countries that weren't so keen on the quad
3: I think uh, respondents from um Singapore, as I said, um were quite skeptical about um the quad relatively, um I mean relatively to other ASEAN uh, respondents, uh but i guess as i said earlier it's because this year is singaporean's um asean chairmanship uh, there's so much focus on asean itself for asean being still the leading uh, framework and the center of uh, attention and also its relevance um that in 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 um, s- somehow justify that reluctance to you know spread attention to other issues that's one one of the explanations.
1: So looking at the quad itself, what do you think is driving the formation of the quad? and are you, do you think there's any misconceptions about where the quad comes from? Is it something to contain China or is it just an organic element of a changing region itself?
3: Um so China uh, was always um, you know a part of the debate in terms of quad quad earlier over ten years ago was always of, also about China's uh, reaction to the Quad uh, in the first place that put it to the le- lethargy for almost a decade. And so that's why I think, you know, managing perceptions and managing op- opinions and views uh, must be accurate uh, to really, um, you know, being able to to drive regional initiative or, you know, a- a de- um, tailor policies, right? Like, uh, that's fair enough that, you know, obviously, um, the Quad will draw attention of China's, but is that uh, uh, my respond my survey found out that the mo- majority of respondents thought that's that is what it is necessarily um, so they
1: they're hoping for a balancing actor in the region to to keep stability is that is that what you're saying
3: i think for smaller and medium sized actors it is always to ha- better to have sort of balance and more actors involved than just one dominant actor i think that's that's a natural thing and uh, China's again in conversation when we, we talk about the revival of the quad. Why do we need revival of a quad? And, um, some would argue that, you know, the conditions are ev- even more, uh, calling for such a, a balance of power or another initiatives or, or calling other actors to be involved in the region. Uh, and I would ag- uh, agree with that, except for one thing that we need to uh, clarify. I think a lot of, um, Re, resistant not rejection but resistant to the quad idea or interpacific comes from misunderstanding what is containment um uh, effort or balance effort i think that conceptual gap must be addressed uh, because it's not like containment in terms of not allowing China to grow, but balance in terms of, you know, allowing the region to have a balance of power, uh, allowing, you know, a certain stability and that balance of power is some somewhere that, you know, we are still working by the rules, um, by rules-based order, where, you know, g- growth of one nation doesn't mean at the expense of others.
1: Do you think with China's goals, whatever they may be, and with China's vision of the region, that anything that is made to, say, balance China's emergence into the region or to shape its activities to suit a certain rules-based order, that China will actually see that as containment. If if China wishes to achieve goal A, but we tell it, well, you can have half of goal A, but also half of goal B. You don't think that China will see that as some kind of containment?
3: I'm sure that there are such views. Uh, I I think there is, China is going through a very much engineered narrative domestically at the moment in terms of uh, what is rightful for it. I think there is a huge sense of injustice done to China at the moment and everything, um, including, you know, international law that they've sign up to unclosed and stuff. An arbitral tribunal ruling that we've seen reaction to is, is unfair to China, even though they Chose not to participate in the process, um, and I'm sure you know there will be reasons to to, uh, to build up such a narrative in, in China. But at the same time, I think um, if there is no conversation on both sides, uh, and there's no other efforts to respond to China's rise, China's ambition will only grow.
1: Mm. And um, which is interesting. Getting back to ASEAN. One of the, the main reasons that ASEAN was formed was to give a certain regional resilience. This was during the Cold War, and a lot of the countries in ASEAN, the original countries, were concerned that they were going to be forced to take on policies not of their choosing, whether that be through um, pressure from the US, pressure from China, or pressure from Russia. So part of the rationale of forming ASEAN was to uh, protect the integrity of the region and the political sovereignty of 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 the region, and now we see the way that they react to the Quad is same same but different Mm -hmm. than during the Cold War. They're looking to to balance the region between two major partners. Funnily enough, some two of the two of the powers, sorry, that were present during the Cold War again. Do you think that there are any echoes from Cold War ASEAN to today's? New balance of power in the region, ASEAN?
3: I think, um, yeah, I think the predominant narrative in ASEAN, and and this is rather um, not really contested, is that they don't want to choose sides, right? They want to be, uh, that's actually principle of ASEAN, one of the principles, which is neutrality. And uh, there will be different, you know, um, strategic considerations and choices um, and the degree that each country would want to be aligned or Non-aligned, and that that's that's their choices individually. But um, uh, overall, the general p- uh, preference is you know not being pushed to choose right. Um, and I think that's perhaps, as you said, put it out that is a trauma from the Cold War era where you know smaller countries are pressed by the the, uh, the big players. Uh, the Quad, I really, uh, I really think it's early days. Uh, so w- we should not be also putting up that those are fixed views the views will be um i think evolving depending how how the quad develops and how the regional context develops i think there is some need for a balance um, but there is a cautious uh a kind of slow slow it down um cautious reception in the region because it the region needs players to be involved and uh, it is actually also quite concerned about being left alone because the narrative coming from the White House and Trump president in particular um, that don't really match with the narrative of the Indo-Pacific strategy, right, which is like Involvement in the region, whereas Trump does, doesn't seem to be convincing everyone that he cares. He's not. He chose not to come to the summits uh, later in November, um, so that sent some signals as well, right? So um, to convince the region uh, about you know the commitment and that the Indo-Pacific is for real, that the Quad is going to happen, so it's going to take more efforts rather than just narratives. The region would want. That to happen to see that happen, um, uh, but at the same time they still have to work with China and uh, realizing that you know uh, there are huge shift in geopolitics at the moment and everybody is a, bit, a little bit anxious some more or uh, some less, uh, but. Uh, to work with China despite those ang- this anxiety, uh, as we see, for example, from the uh, joint drills just happened a couple of days ago, um, showcase that um, ASEAN needs to work with China despite uh, all the concerns they have, but they also will work with other uh, external actors who want to contribute mm. to the larger interest of the collective.
1: Part of your answer there reminds me actually of a contribution that you actually made to a journal that I edit, the Security Challenges Journal, quick plug from a journal out there, um, (laughs) where you mentioned it's also looking at at Australia's um, uh, relationship with ASEAN and it can't just be a special summit, that there actually has to be real effort, real follow-through and real understanding Mm -hmm. of the motivations of the region, what the region wants and how we can become part of the regional architecture Mm -hmm. and neighbourhood as well. I I think it was a great submission that you made to the journal and i encourage everybody to read it um so as you've mentioned australia is one of the quad countries what do you think some of the main takeaways for australian policymakers should be from your findings
3: yeah so uh, one of the reasons as i said i wanted to learn about what are the prevalent perceptions in the region about the quad um and uh, the purpose of the finding is to inform the policy, um, uh, to carefully, um, tailor policy to, uh, to the existing, uh, views and perceptions and how to address those negative or, for example, or misperceptions. Um, so my recommendation is to actually acknowledge the nuances within the ASEAN region and work individually with uh, certain countries with tailored policies rather than treating um, the ASEAN as a whole. And we have one policy towards how to buy in uh, ASEAN support or how to work with ASEAN um, just as a one policy. I think there needs to be nuanced policies. As I said, there are some countries uh, that are more supportive and some are more skeptical. So we will need different approaches uh, to work with them individually, um, and my second uh, recommendation is actually uh, address those misperceptions because you know learning from the past pr- experience, misperception can really cause a lot of damage or you know leaving a void for certain only certain views to be disseminated and then t- therefore take over um the n- narrative can be also dangerous so acknowledge and really do an in-depth studies of what are the perceptions and really acknowledge the nuances and work with those nuances rather than um you know let- letting the misperception take over and i think um from what i understand that there's um, a certain preference of you know more action uh, more objective and rather than building narrative but i think the two also need to go in parallel um, because if you lack narrative um, there will be just continuous uh, lack of understanding lack of clarity and therefore very hard to you know We can't really talk about support or not support if people don't know what is it that you're talking about and what are your objectives. So I really recommend, um, you know, clarifying that to the quad members, but also to the wider region.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic takeaway and it's a fantastic piece of work that you've done. I really encourage our listeners to get out and listen to it. And I just want to say thank you very much, Huang Latu, for joining us on the sidelines of the Women in National Security Conference.
3: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: So that's it for this week. But keep an ear to your podcast devices, because while today was going to be our last episode, we have a bit of a special pod due for release on Monday. We'll be hearing from the panelists of one of the crowd favorite events of the conference, Security Through Community, would, you, would your Security Songlines. Make sure you look out for that on Monday because it is a fascinating discussion. We are really keen to hear what you have thought about our Women in National Security Conference guests and any of the issues that we have discussed, You can get in touch with us by Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society, on Twitter, where we are at Apps Policy Forum, or just flick us through an email, podcast at policyforum.net. I'm Gabrielle Knipe, and until Monday, bye for now.